So we uh, have a discussion um, amongst ourselves of the first two exhibitions of the evening, which we've been paid to go and see, and I hope you've been able to go and see. We'll be looking at uh, uh, Gabriella Averts and Dan Walsh. And uh, then we open things up to some discussion from, uh, from, from you guys, from the audience, and repeat the exercise for the other two exhibitions of the evening, um, which are of um, uh, Susan Rothenberg and Michael St. John. So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, my panelists. Um, uh, who Cora has already introduced, but you can't have too many introductions to such splendid people. Uh, Noah Dillon uh, is a former associate uh, critic, a former associate editor of ArtCritical.com, um, the magazine that I publish, and um, he is an independent critic and was recently elected to the uh, prestigious position of the board of the American section of AICA, the International Association of Art Critics. Um, to uh, next along the line is uh, Lila Pedro. She's a former um, associate editor of both uh, 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 Hyper Allergic and uh, the Brooklyn Rail. Um, in between that, she went off to work for The Shed, and she's also currently um, uh, working at Matthew Mark's gallery. Um, and going back to one of her first loves, uh, which is um, a dance writing. So, art critic and dance writer. Um, and um, Ariella Budik is the New York critic for the Financial Times. And so, please, um, they are all distinguished uh, former members of the review panel. So, um, let's um, give them a warm welcome and expect a lively evening. Wonderful. Um, we're experimenting this evening with dispensing with the video introductions, um, but instead we, you have the, the usual good um, slide projections to look at as we're discussing the shows. But out of out of interest, um, how many of um, how many of the audience managed to see two or more of the exhibitions we're discussing this evening? Well, that's pretty fantastic. We'll better be on our toes then. Ah, and. Maybe this is a good moment to suggest that it's a good moment to turn off your cell phones um, um, if you have them on and are not expecting an urgent call um, or a more interesting call than the review panel. It's, anything is possible, but it would be better for the review panel if you didn't uh, um, receive calls because um, we are, in fact, recording the proceedings, as is always the case, so that... Um, the rest of the world can hear this evening's deliberations at artcritical.com, where the panel's going right back to um, the going right back to 2004. The National Academy are um, nicely archived. Um, I think Ariella, you were last with us at the um, National Academy. Is that correct? And then you did join me in Philadelphia as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So, um, Greg and team, we're ready for loop number one. Um, we're starting the evening's proceedings, as it were, with uh, 
two exhibitions of, um, well, two, no, we'll make the comparisons or I'll leave it to better councils to uh, make the comparisons. But our first exhibition um, is of Gabriella Evert, the German-born painter who was for many years a professor at um, Hunter College, um, um, color theory, obviously, or color intuitions play uh, are the central player in what she's doing. Um, just a reminder to the panelists, I forgot to tell you in the green room, we don't want the audience seeing us all craning our necks to look at the slides because the slides are really there for their delectation and amusement and edification. Uh, we know the work so intimately that we have no need to... Ooh, that's interesting. Look at the uh, uh, the images behind us. So, um, uh, Noah, if I may start with you, Gabriella Averts, um, nothing if not rigorous. Um, tell us, tell us what we should most expect to enjoy in this work. What is the most stimulating about her work? I think there's like a lot of really interesting color stuff going on here, sort of obviously. I mean, that's her f primary focus and, and, and driver. I, I, it kind of passed by me the first time I was looking at these. And then it, after some slower reflection, it becomes a little bit more obvious, like what some of the patterns are here that she's playing with. Um, and the uh, any sort of like painterliness is just like sublimated to hard edge lines. I wanted to ask, I don't know if anybody did, whether or not she's using paint out of the tube or if, or if she's mixing colors herself. I mean, it, it's just very flat. Uh, one thing that I hadn't seen her do before is the use of um, uh, metallic paint. Metallic paint, yes. I think there has been metallic paint in the most in the prior show because I was reading the catalogue and and they were talking about the metallic paint there. Um, uh, Matthew Delegate, who's the director of Minus Space, and um, um, a faithful scribe of the of Averitz, uh, Averitz, sorry, um, and um, yes, because he was describing I think how um, metallic paint has properties quite distinct from both um, the uh, primary hues and the, the grays and, and sort of neutral uh, tones in, 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 in her work, in that the metallic sort of picks up light and changes. Actually, a metallic paint apparently is always made up of at least two colors. And that um, uh, the other thing about metallic paint is that on a, in a long strip, such as we see in these paintings, um, you'll actually see modulations in light from top to bottom. I mean, I think the the other thing that I had not seen her do before, and maybe I'm just not familiar enough with the work. I've seen it at Minus Space a few years ago, and mm. um, I had not seen paintings quite so big. And these are kind of much more vertiginous, and and it, it, they're very acidic on the eyes. They're hard to look at. You know, close up. You you kind of you have to stand back at the about the yes. space where you 
see these photographs. Well, something I did learn from interacting with the with with Matthew is that um, it's a more densely hung show than is usual for this painter. Um, and also, what I was picking up was um, because the, the the installation is of evenly sized paintings, but of very different uh, character one to the other. Uh, but um, if you step out onto the street, there's a couple of paintings of a different size, um, maybe slightly narrower. And if you go into the office, there's uh, a few more uh, smaller ones. Um, um, Ariella, do do you? Um, I just said, oh, they're diff quite different in character, but others might not feel that. How how did you feel about the installation? Did you feel that it was great variety here, or did you feel it was a a unified message, and you you either you you know go for it or you don't? Uh, can you hear me? Okay. So I. Uh I thought it was fairly unified, but I did feel that there was tension within the work. And initially when I looked at it, I thought that the lines were straight. And it was only, you know, like, you really had to study them for a while. And mm. you start to see that some of them were diagonals or had diagonal things or that the lines were widening or narrowing or, and, and then I wasn't sure whether it was an illusion created by the colors or the, you know, the color juxtaposition or whether it was in fact tapering. And then I, to, to determine it, I took a photograph, a close up of the lines and then I could see that most of them weren't tapering. And in fact, they have this kind of hand, they look like they're doing this when you look at them from a distance, but when you take a photograph, they're completely straight. A photograph can be deceptive, though, because I noticed that in um, looking at JPEGs of some of these images, that moiré patterns that I didn't see on the painting and, and that, that mercifully I didn't see um, at this scale. Um, but there was intrude. something dizzying about it and oh, yes. a little bit it's like op artiginous. I mean, I, I, I felt like I couldn't be in the presence of them for very long just because they were fairly aggressive in a way that they don't sort of, this doesn't, isn't suggested by looking at them here, but when they're in, when you're in the presence of them, they're, um, you know, they're kind of in your face. Might that have some, had something to do with the closeness of, in the, in the, the tightness of the hang? Possibly. I mean, I, so the other thing that I wanted to say about the tension is that she talks in the catalog about geometry versus perfection, mm. and that her work operates in this sort of interspace between those two things. And then she brings up something like, I forget now, it's something in the sublime. There's a sort of spiritual dimension to mm. it. Mm. And, and, in, and perfection, my impression, what she means is that perfection is really bad. She doesn't want perfection. She wants something that's sort of near perfect. And, mm. oh, exaltation. It's, that's exaltation. That's the title that's of the show. That's the title of the it? show. Yes. And, and that there's something, she wants you to have this experience of transcendence in the presence of these works, which you do, but it's much more, in a way, a physical sensation than it is an emotional one, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's interesting to, I mean, 
the British painter Bridget Riley, whose whose work is um, uh, similarly um, rigidly, rigorously obsessed with um, color and color relationships, um, um, but she she will always only speak of the work in um, material um, and procedural terms. Uh, whereas with um, Averts, it's interesting that um, comparable paintings, although actually very different paintings, but nonetheless paintings of comparable genre uh, can be spoken of by a German-born American um, in um, much more, uh, it potentially kind of, well, she actually says somewhere that she, in, it, coming from Germany, they think of these things very metaphysically. And in America, everything is very pragmatic and that she's she's enjoyed the tension herself between those two. Um, but um, what is the quality of experience that you have with these works, Lila? Um, I would like to come back to the question of the physicality of them. And actually, there's like things that each of you said that all are aspects of what I thought was really striking about it. Um, Noah, you talked about the sort of uh, painterliness, like the material um, quality of them being sort of completely sublimated, which I think is true. They they feel, even up close, they feel quite like flat and just like done. Um, and David, you sort of off like handedly mentioned JPEGs, but I think that especially for young art writers, there's so many young writers that I talk to these days who have like long theoretical, you know, with multiple dependent clauses, <laughs> opinions about artworks that they've not seen in person, um, which, you know, I'm sure there's some digital age philosophical argument to be made for that. Personally, I find it quite disturbing. Um, and what I found so strong about this show is that there's absolutely no way to convey the effect of these works, both in the hang, in the scale of the works, and in the meticulous um, chromatic interplay that she has created that is not physical. And I don't, I mean, I, I felt dizzy too. I felt a little like, I mean, this is like, I get migraines. I felt, it was like that feeling a little bit. Um, but I thought that was actually quite a, a courageous and necessary gesture at this moment to remind us that the experience of a painting is an embodied experience. It necessarily is an embodied experience. You need to be in the room oh, yeah. with the object. And I thought that was a very powerful yeah, thing. Yeah, these in are not show. Instagram ready Correct. images, are they? No. Uh, Ariella, you had something yeah, to. I wanted to ask you. I mean, the thing I thought of when I saw them was of those Gerhard Richter digital works. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm talking about? They're like these, they're actually, they have them at the shed. They that's were, right. That's why we projected. saw them at the shed, yes. I've seen versions of them that are not projected, that are actual, like either canvases or I don't actually know how they're made. They're made with layering of pigment or something. Um, but they are totally mechanical, mm -hmm. whereas these are completely not. And those almost look like they're not, and these look like they are. There's yeah, a and, well, and interestingly, Richter refer, at least the ones that were at the shed, Richter referred to as wallpapers. Um, so, you know, he is 
explicitly calling it a decorative object that needs to come into play with something else. In this case, it was the music. At, at but the show. Richter ones were also made uh, as, as basically collages of existing works. Yeah, and derived from actually mechanical patterns. Yes. So I think that there there is something in that, that they were made to um, activate a different kind of experience in a much more... You know, if you buy, which I don't necessarily, mm. a pure mind-body divide in an experience of art, they were made mm. as a very cerebral kind of thing, and these to me are made as a very mm. Merleau-Ponty, like phenomenologically situated thing. But uh, no, these are, um, you know, first impression you might have of them is of that somewhat um, uh, mechanical, uh, or at least. Um, um, Format driven, so like like the Alba's Square, which is those whole the Square series, um, fastidiously keep to the same proportions of square, and then it's all about the color interaction. But actually, um, these are that's complicated stuff going on in the composition of these basically stripes, um, uh, and and um, so it's not quite as um, like orthodox as as uh, as for instance Albers, while being kind of not I want don't want to say color theory driven because they don't seem programmatic in a theoretical way, but um, it's um, a heady experience for those who um, are not uh, either versed in or ready to be swayed by um, pure the pure formality of color interactions so um i mean i guess <clears throat> i i think that there's a lot that's that is pure formalism here that is you know playing around with spectrums and stuff like that mm. um moving from one color very steadily to the next and ah, repeating them mm. in periodic uh permutations i i also take back a little bit the sort of mechanicalness that i ascribed to them. If you look at the edges, especially the top and bottom edges, you mm. can see where the paint has sort of like acted in this way that is, it was not just applied as this even coat. It was applied by a hand doing a specific action. Yes. Specific materials. I mean, I think it's interesting too that she is, I, I think the color is interesting in part because you can tell that she very, very deliberately picked out each color. Well, yes. I did not see any, like, reconsideration of any of this stuff. No, nor are they, nor are they um, primaries or banal. Right. Um, right. Uh, they're more often than not hard to name colors. You need to, uh, you need to exercise some poetic muscle to get some... Um, Honorable description going of each color, yeah. and and um, in, in that respect, they, they they seem anything but conceptual. They seem to actually be. Um, you you talk about spectrum and and even pacing, but it seems more often than not that there's sort of intuitive decisions about uh, the structure and composition of these paintings. And what I don't know because. I feel like a bit like when I'm walking around a museum looking at, uh, say, Chinese ceramics or something, or even more Chinese calligraphy. Um, it's very beautiful. I love it. And I can understand how 
Uh, one could be a connoisseur, but it would obviously you need to speak Chinese, and I don't. Um, and so with these, I sort of oh, I love the uh, rigor and authority and the sense of dedication of these, and they all come down to um, color interactions. And shame on me, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I love color, but uh, can I just really? I've never quite worked out. Yes, oh yes, the way that yellow interacts with that grey produces this halo of mauve, blah, blah. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it's just for cleverer people than me to intuit those things. I just sort of let let it. But, it, but it's not just decoration. It seems to be, it's not, it's really not, they're not there. The decisions are not decorative ones. The decisions are um, about colour perception, aren't they, all along, all the way. Yes. I mean, I think I think it's in the catalog too, or the interview that she did with the um, gallerist, um, where she talks about politics. I think I'm, I hope I'm not making this up, but I, th I think I remember it, um, where she sort of sees the paintings as a way of as a kind of escape from our current political discourse, mm. and they're meant to sort of transcend and provide a kind of physical space where you can be, you know, you can remove yourself and be removed from what's, you know, the sort of noise. That's all. Right. I, I think she said that. I didn't notice many Trump supporters in the gallery when I was there, but um, that's uh, a, a nice no, note. They own all the real estate nearby, though. <laughs> uh, yes, right. Hmm. I mean, I definitely felt, I felt not just that I was getting away from that, from, you know, everything like impeachment and everything, but also just that part of Brooklyn has mm. become so... Oh, God, yes. Um, no, I, I, I drove there, actually, because I just happened to have the car. And, um, um, my goodness, it's, it's become a thing now to get... Uh, your photograph taken with that exactly. view of the bridge. It's the Berenice Abbott Ooh. spot, right? She ah. she photographed that spot, right. that view of the bridge through the buildings. Ah, they're more and, culture and than I am. I didn't taking realize selfies that. there. Mm. And you step out of it and you're in this gallery and it's mm. just, you know, wow, that's... Aptly named, minus space. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, at a remove from the um, glitzification of Dumbo. Well, I, you know, I was just thinking about... Like part of the work is it has to work like this has to persuade you to like hang out there long enough to be in the artist like space. And um, the corollary that I was thinking of is like when you walk into a gallery like, um, oh shoot, who was the guy who uh, he had a retrospective at the, New Museum not long ago did all the punk covers. Uh, Raymond Pettibone, mm. oh, he's it's like covered with text, and like you're expected to stand there and like read all of these drawings very carefully, and it becomes very aggravating for me. And even if I appreciate what's going on there, it just it drives me up a wall. And so then again with Gabrielle Ever, it's like. I really like what's going on in these paintings. It is very hard to stand there long enough to be inducted into the mindset that she wants you to be in, to read these paintings and all the slants and lines mm. and stuff like that. Whereas like Marcus Lindenbrink, like you see the stripes and it's like, it's there. 
you know. Right, because he is generating a sumptuous decorative effect and, and mm. linen brink. And he's also using painterly gesture to, mm. uh, as, as, as almost half the story. And, and also he's uh, saturating you in an environment. The, the, the slight problem with Averts, well, it could actually be, in fact, be a fundamental problem, is that um, the, uh, the delectations are to be had in specific moments within the painting in that that's where you get the, the specifics of interaction mm. of, say, the gray with this color or, the, or, the, or one color and another. Um, and um, you, you can't, with that localite, I, I'm, I'm therefore not sure what it is that makes one painting one painting and the next the next. Why, what, in other words, um, if, um, if I can't stand back and get the totality of image... Uh, within one canvas, but instead, the canvas is um, uh, is like a, um, is less, it's just an area where you're going to have maybe fifteen, twenty different aesthetic experiences with each color interaction. Then um, why not just why not be sort of one painter? Is there something mood wise that that makes you think, okay, this painting here? is really about gray and its interactions with color. Or this one here is really about the metallics and yellow and da da da. Or this one here is about the um, consistency and uniformity of this sort of um, tuning fork type shape. Um, I, maybe there's a, um, uh, a mood or a range within each canvas, um, but it's still a sort of serial experience to be had in that canvas, rather than to, rather than stepping back and having um, a, some sort of singular gestalt defining your experience of that canvas, does that objection make sense? I haven't thought of it this term, but I, yeah, like if I think back on the show, I'm not like this one will mm. stood out for these. Or no, it's not even as as, as that issue. Yes, but also when you're looking at a painting, you uh, sometimes wonder. What is it that makes this a painting beyond the fact that it happens to be a painting? Um, in other words, so um, you know, a, a great, a great painting by uh, you know, if you're looking at a Titian, uh, it's it's all there are great, lovely details to be had in it. But you can also step back and ding, get the story, get the pictorial message. Uh, whereas here, it's almost like. Um, one will do the trick, and if there were, if there was not eight paintings in that room, but only one painting in that room, I'm not sure I would spend less time in the gallery. I would just, uh, just spend more time with that one painting because the the real experience is to be had between a few bands within the painting, not all the bands within the painting stepping back and seeing the painting as a whole. I mean, I just, I thought of them as their ultimate home in someone's living room or, you know, and, and they don't need to have eight of them. They just need to have one. So they, they're commodities ultimately and someone will buy them and take them home and put them up and look at one painting. Yes, yes. But whether you're looking at eight or one, you still got, even if you get down to one, you still got this problem of the oneness of that one. Um, because the actual experience is, say, say a typical painting has 
I guess, 40 stripes in it. Um, your, your real experience is going to be between stripes three, four, five, or seven, eight, nine, or, um, you know, you're not really going to get all, you're not going to get it all at once. The, the gestalt is, is almost like, it's just a, it's just a setup for isolated experiences. I guess, but is that a problem or is that just like a really ambitious painting? You know, like if you are setting up a, like 10 different problems, mm -hmm. 10 different color problems in like one painting for yourself and trying to figure out how to make a cohesive surface, is that a, a problem or is that like, and especially she's 84 years old? Right. Like that's, that's, that's a pretty impressive feat. To, to work all that stuff out. I mean, like, there are younger painters who are diligently working out monochromes that are just mm. going to knock your socks off, and she's, she's figuring out how to do Ah, well, this, this, what you're saying here is the contradiction I wanted to hear, because what you're saying is working it out. So that implies that within a given canvas, a spectrum of relationships has been worked out to make it a unified experience, that canvas. Are you, you, you're feeling that that is the case? I would bet that, yeah. yeah. I, think she, I think she thinks really hard about what she's doing here. Oh, I don't doubt that. From, is that conclusion necessary? I mean, is it enough to have a set of propositions rather than a conclusion? Mm. Um, it's almost as if you could say, um, are there like three bands in painting one and then three bands in painting two that are interesting together? Or is it that everything that's in painting number one makes sense to an argument about color within painting number one? Um, you couldn't reverse the bands in any way. You couldn't, you couldn't crop it and just have half the painting. No, you, it's, it's, do, do you, I mean, does, does anyone feel that um, there's, there's, a, there's real resolution in each painting of that painting? Or is it really that actually each painting is a site within which um, as many color relationships as you could squeeze into that painting can be had uh, in that painting? Um, the ones that I could figure out what was going on, the, that all is true. They, there is like a cohesive thing that runs through this painting that makes, makes a full and total, like, I don't know if you say argument, or, but a presentation of like a, a, color, a set of color problems. There are a few that I could not figure out, but I put that on myself as like, right. I couldn't figure out all the things that she's trying to do here. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that based on the evidence of like the ones that I could put together, I would trust that there is something going on there that I am just missing. I, I would love for us all to just go to the Minus Gallery now and have this discussion in front of one painting and have Noah or, 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 or any of my other panelists or indeed Matthew Delegate, sort of give me a close reading of that particular painting and say, look, this painting is really all about 
purple and grey. Can't you see how from here to here, this is elaborated, th in, in this passage we're getting uh, the problem of yellow with purple and grey, and this one we're getting da-da-da-da-da, and then the totality is telling us da-da-da-da-da. I'd love it if that's the case, and that's something to be had. I, I suppose I should just enjoy not getting it, and, and, and uh, you know, um, I think um, as long as someone else is having that experience, then I feel vindicated in my positive feelings based in relative ignorance of these paintings and their achievements. The other thing is explaining what, how these stripes are lined up and arranged does not, is not going to necessarily confer appreciation for it or, or, or enjoyment of it. I mean, It would be a beginning. If you heard a, 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 an analytical description of a piece of music um, which told you uh, that this is an elaboration on a particular theme and the, the musician has, the composer really has exhausted this notion without it exhausting us and it, and it has a beginning, middle and end, um, you know, even if it's very serial music, like uh, something by Morton Feldman, for instance, or, or John Cage, you would say, um, you know... Um, Here's four minutes, 33 seconds of silence, and, and right. now you're enlightened about what a great piece of music... Or like, here's here's why the joke is a joke. Well, that, I, I that, don't, yes. yeah. That's with Cage, but with Mort Feldman is a better example then. Okay. So um, you have these triads, and there's something beautiful going on but you can you can savor the triads you can get lost in the sensations of interactions but um the person playing it for instance is not having that sort of relationship with the music they uh would fully understand that it's exactly the duration it needs to be for what it's done and it's doing maybe yeah maybe yeah. maybe maybe not good note on which to turn to our second um hard-ish edged um, geometry slash perfection artist Dan Walsh showing um, at, um, at at Paula Cooper Gallery. I was just checking that there isn't a subtitle. There isn't. It's just called Dan Walsh. Um, so um, how are we doing? It's coming. I have faith. Okay. Well, we can start talking, and, and in a moment we'll see some lovely, da you will see some lovely Dan Walsh images. Um, um, Lila, no, yes, Lila, get us going on, on Dan Walsh. Um, I think I had a s more of the experience with the Dan Walsh works that David had with the Everett's works where they are clearly striving to do something with color and pattern. In some cases, it's quite beautiful um, and sophisticated. Um, they're of a nice scale and pleasant to be in a room with, but whatever the problem is that they are trying to solve, I did not find terribly compelling. Mm. Um, so I, I think partly that's due to the fact that they are much more open works hung in a much more open way. So you don't have that like compression tension sensation um, that um, you have at minus. But um, yeah, overall I was like, this is a beautiful object thoughtfully and 
um, skillfully executed that I'm now done looking at. Like, that was my takeaway. Yeah, um, much more pop, aren't they? These these images much more um, invested in the culture. Um, probably, um, perhaps less cerebral, but um, um, certainly a lot of fun, though. Ariella, what did what was your experience with them? Um. I, well, I had just gotten back from Mexico uh, the day before I went to see them, and they looked like tiles to me hanging on a wall. I mean, I, I, my, uh, some of them, especially the colors, um, just looked like arrangements of tiles, and they were very decorative. And then I thought some more about it, and um, they looked sort of non, sort of generally non-Western. They had a kind of Islamic look. They had, then I read them a little bit differently as kind of cartoon bubbles. Then in one of them I saw multiplying penises kind of. Yeah, I noticed that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there were things that started to come out, but I, I also thought they were fairly kind of innocuous. And, um, you know, very symmetrical, very, you know, and then, oh, this is the thing, though, that I noticed. I, looking closely at them, they do have this mark of the hand on them. It looked to me like it was, at first I thought it was a lipstick mark, like somebody had kissed them. Mm. And all of them have this. There's like where the lines go. I mean, I wish we had one because where the lines go, sort of the blobby lines go horizontal you kind of see this mark at one end of it, and then it gets more opaque. And in the mark place, it's sort of more transparent. And I asked one of the assistants there, you know, what is that? Is it a lipstick mark? Is it someone, did someone kiss him? She said, no. He, he paints it so that you can see the hand-painted aspect of it in one part of the canvas so that they don't look machine-made. You know, so the, the, the point is, you know, you might think that this is machine made and he's showing you, uh, 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 not so fast, you know, this is made by the hand. And I thought that that was kind of interesting in one of them. In all of them, I thought it was a kind of the same gesture over and over again and not that. I just, I thought they were very repetitive. So. It's also that gesture of, like there's, uh, there's plenty of really fascinating bodies of work that are just about mark making, you know? So mm-hmm. just kind of throwing it in as just an, in a signaler of I did this thing in this way does not, I don't think, add much. Yes. Noah, save Dan Walsh for us. I don't know. I like Dan Walsh's paintings a lot. Good. Um, I think they're really beautiful. I think I, I am very sympathetic to like the complaints that are coming out here, and I don't really have much of a response that would um, be capable of dismissing them. But like, I just think they're really pretty paintings, and I like the appearance of the hand in them. I find it very curious, like how he makes these marks. I cannot get my head around it. I'm sure there's an explanation written down somewhere. I think I'm also a little bit biased because like I'm friends with people who are friendly with Dan Walsh and right. You know, so there's like sympathies of like 
aesthetic interests going on here. Um, you know, he's been doing these paintings for like a long time and, um, and within the paintings themselves, there's like a lot of repetition. So I don't know. I don't know what to, to say about that, except that I think that his use of color is really smart. And I think mm. there are things going on in the paintings, color relationships. There's one with um, these kind of like blue diamond patterns. Oh, yes, and yes. you can see very, if you look, the you know, he's got this diamond shape in blue and then he's painted another blue that is only very slightly different over top of it. And you, you can't really see that clearly in all of them, which I think is a funny thing to do to, to have this sort of like subliminal, uh, color choice. I don't know. Yeah. They, they seem to come out of a very different culture than, um, Averts that yes. they, they, um, I, I said they, they feel pop, but they, they, um, they, um, without me being able to specify what in popular culture they relate to, they have a popular culture feel to them, uh, a vibe to them. And, um, um, they're, they're, they're also, when you see the whole show, um, um, bouncing around quite different sensibilities from one yeah. room to another. Some might have a kind of almost uh, arabesque feeling to them, like um, uh, th there's one that has um, these these petal shapes adhering to the corners mm -hmm. in contrast to another, which will be um, like every conceivable permutation and variation on some signifier, which I think is the... the um, penis one that, that Ariella was noticing. Um, not all of the iterations have that, but some of them have a sort of almost schematic of um, um, the male privates going on. Um, and then there's that sculpture. Uh, it seems that every abstract painter at some point has to make a sculpture these days. It's the Sean Scully effect. But it's, um, um, there's a cube, the perfect, the um, Walsh's cube as opposed to Rubik's cube. It's a, it's a, a whole um, quilted um, uh, grid of um, colors going on there. Um, is it just an inevitable thing to move into sculpture for him? Does it feel like it's growing out of? Some I mean, concern? I don't. I don't see any reason for it. Yeah, I, I or a reason just, not. Yeah, I saw it and I just sort of ignored it. Basically, <laughs> I mean, I'm so so. One thing that struck me is that like he's been doing these for a long time. They look a lot to me like, um, like the icons on your phone at this point. Mm. And mm. I thought that that was a very strange coincidence that like all of a sudden there is now a similar interest in the wider culture for mm. images that are kind of like this in a way though, that is unfortunately fairly disposable and ignorable. Mm -hmm. um, I would also like to know, I think some of those, uh, I would like to know what the reaction to the blotter paper pieces are. Cause, cause those seem sort of much more innocuous than the paintings to me. Blotter paper. Mm -hmm. Are these actually on paper? Yeah, I think so. Yes. The black and white. Pieces. You mean the ones in the little room? Oh, that, that, that room with the smaller ones. Yes. There were some more interesting paintings in that room, too, that reminded me of like David Reed. Like, 
the weird way that he produces these things. That David Reed. Yeah, mm. that looks sort of tossed off, but when you actually look at them, they're very, yeah. like, the way that they're made is kind of head scratching. I'm uh, curious that, you know, when we choose shows, I, I sort of go with the vibe I'm picking up from the uh, panelists, and there seemed to be a lot of interest in Walsh, and I was biting my lip thinking, ah, I wish we could discuss David Reed. He's really interesting. Uh, who's, he has a show at goes in at the moment, and I think it's a spectacular show, and we could be talking all night about it. And, and now I find that some of the people who chose Dan Walsh and less but than... I don't really like David Reed very much, but I, w- I was at Gagosian a few weeks ago, and I was in an office there, and they had this David Reed up on the wall, and it like blew my mind, like the complicated stuff that he was doing. And then seeing the Dan Walsh doing sort of similar things with color and... Yeah, but very different things with paint. And, what's that? Very different things with paint. I mean, yes. Can we just talk about the similarities between the two shows? Because I think... Everett, Everts and yeah, Walsh. The two yeah, we were just sure. discussing. Absolutely. I feel like they're both, they have more in common than even as different as they are. Um, they're both resolutely not looking at the world that we live in and that we have to contend with. I mean, they're mm-hmm. looking away and that's sort of hard to do just to get your mind into that um that place where you can repeat endlessly these motifs. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Cora, can you bring the laptop to me? Because, of course, there's a password on it and you can't even open it. <laughs> so, um, and I can get you something instantaneously. <laughs> sorry about this technical hitch. Um, but You can uh, see how boring these paintings are, apparently. <laughs> yes, we want you to see how boring these paintings are. And, and <laughs> you might be getting too interested in them. Um, ah, yes, okay. Um, How are we actually doing for... Oh, you know what? It's actually about time for our our patient audience to um, come to the rescue anyway. Um, But um, let's... uh, I mean, what on earth happened to Dan Walsh? Microsoft, open... No, you don't have to listen to me doing this. Um, I think, ladies and gentlemen, very patient audience... While we get something for you to look at um, uh, on Walsh, um, yeah, why, what's wrong with that, for instance? Yeah, it's, it's a loop number one. Uh, that, use that one. Yeah. And um, if uh, the thing closes down, is the passcode. Um, and everyone else, please don't hack into my... We're going to put that on there's the internet. nothing to steal. And um, You can find that password at artcritical.com. Oh, and this is being recorded. I think I'd better change my password. I think it may be time. This is being recorded. And it's the World Wide Web, where millions of people tune in habitually anyway to the review panel. And now you can hack into Cohen's... Uh, um, yes, you can see his uh, Spotify, his... Pornhub, you can see the lot. Okay, right. Um, audience, you've been very patient. You're about to be rewarded for your patience with um, a little PowerPoint of Dan Walsh. Um, and uh, in the meantime, uh, what is your feedback for our, from our discussions of Averts and Walsh? And there's a mic that'll go around. A couple of... Ah, yes, it's going to go to Jill Nathanson, who's a sometime contributor to Art Critical. Okay, so... Is it on? Is it on? Is it on? Yeah. 
Um, so I did not see uh, the Everett show. So um, I, I will try to be brief because I feel I shouldn't. I shouldn't comment. But just from looking at the images, and I have seen her painting, so I'm not completely out of it. Um, it looks like that she's doing something that I haven't really seen anyone painting with painting stripes do before, which is, first of all, she has these very strong value contrasts. She has these areas of dark and areas of light, these sort of zones. So she has these small, narrow stripes and many, many narrow stripes, but then she has um, kind of zones or fields. And the color interaction within each of those zones is very specific to that zone. So the zones are interacting on a larger scale and then the small zips or um, you know stripes are doing something else. So th that is very interesting to me that she's integrating so much value contrast. And so I think that she's in dialogue with the whole history of stripe painting and doing something quite unique. So I haven't seen the show, but I did look at the whole you know the images online and can't wait to get down there. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, Robert Morgan, another art critical contributor. Uh, yes, I, I think the critique of, uh, if it is a critique, I'm not sure, of uh, Gabrielle Everts is, uh, uh, well, you know, there was a time when there was something called color field painting that was very popular, and I think that's about at least four or five decades ago. And it's very different than what she does. Hmm. And uh, where we can talk about color field, we can also talk about color theory, which probably is closer to her consciousness of working. Uh, but what I appreciate about the work is that she doesn't overdo that. In other words, she's not too literal about it. And I think the panel is tending to be a little too literal, which is very, um, if I can say it's a, a kind of um, American idea. Uh, you know, and you, you want to know what it's about based on something that has been set up before. And I think in her case, she is trying to tear down the walls of what she's set up. And I think she's full of wonderment. And I don't think she knows what she's going to get in terms of these panels, mm -hmm. I think, uh, or paintings. Uh, I think that uh, she's as surprised as any of us in terms of how it's going to come together. Also, there was no mention of the fact that there are diagonal lines, very subtle ones, but I think that that gives an op optical interpretation to many of these fields that is very important for her. And this is rather new, actually, and I think that we need to uh, think about that in terms of a close examination and in terms of the entirety of the field. Uh, anyway, I think I've said enough, so... Thank you. No, uh, it's a good amount. Yes. A uh, couple of rows down. Mm -hmm. um, just quickly picking up on what Robert said, that yes. I went to the show, uh, the Everts show, on a weekend, and there was nobody in the gallery. And it, so I actually spent quite a lot of time in there. I spent about, almost three hours with the paintings. And wow. I actually found myself really, you know... I, can you speak into the mic? I can hardly hear you. Um, it was interesting listening to the panel's uh, response, and I do think that you know the initial there's an initial visual response where they can be a bit overwhelming at first because there is so much happening coloristically and optically um, that 
it, there, it does really take time to adapt, I guess, mm-hmm. to that, to actually visually adapt to them. And I, th- I thought that maybe the metaphor of music, the way we listen to music, which mm. is sound, you know, and moving through time, in a sense, she's almost doing something like that. Of course, it's on a plane, you know, so it is, so I'm just sort of responding to your, the, your response of saying like, it, you're having a question about, do they actually resolve as one piece? And mm. I, I kind of agree with him that, you know, it, there's something about, since they're, they're nonverbal in a way. I mean, the experience itself is a nonverbal experience. It's, it's a completely sent, optically sensual experience. Yes, but you can be all of those things and still resolve, can't you? Well, I mean, I guess, what great works of music is, resolve, what, great paintings resolve. What do you resolve. actually mean by resolve? Like, are, is it that we're trying to place them within the history of painting? No, no. What I mean by resolve is I stand back from the painting and I see a singular gestalt that makes sense, that exhausts, um, that it doesn't have to exhaust, but uh, um, uh, gives me a balanced sense of all the of, of many permutations on some singular theme or set of themes that make particular sense within this one canvas, so that Avert's number one has a different sensation and feel from Avert's number two, and that I'm not seeing passages within number one that could work just as well within number two. So, for instance, when you look at a Rothko painting, um, you know, it, it resolves, the res- doesn't resolve, but you um, th- you get the relationship between one lozenge and its ground and the other lozenge and its ground and both lozenges within one canvas. Um, you wouldn't just cut and paste one lozenge from a Rothko into another Rothko because each Rothko has this integrity that makes it a Rothko, frankly. Um, some of them are not as great as the others, but you wouldn't, you, at least each one is its own thing. And my sense was that maybe um, a, a person with a better eye than me could have that sensation and see that in Avitz. But the horrible little suspicion was nagging away at me that this is really an artist whose each canvas has its parts rather than being a whole. But you were there for three hours, yes, so tell us. I, I, I felt that, they, that some did. If I wasn't actually thinking of them in terms of in that term of do I didn't have that same question that you had perhaps, hmm. but um, they, I felt that some of them did. If you really spend time with them, that they actually do. Hmm. You, but it takes a while to, for your eye to begin to read them within their own terms. I guess. I mean, I began to find some, especially with the small ones. Actually, in the back yes. room, I actually felt like the more time I spent with them, you could oh. see how they were resolving from one from one end to the other. Thank you. And can we give a big round of applause to the technicians who've (laughs) penetrated my ineptitude and given us uh, a nice little display of Dan Walsh uh, to do him a little test. That's what I meant by, yeah, there you are. Ah, I see what you mean by David Reed. It's the swirly, yes, yes. It's there. Um, It's like, it's like David Reed for five-year-olds, isn't it? Because it's just, um, it's, no, but no, I'm, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, five-year-olds are great. But I mean, it's, it's one, one um, groove within... Anyway, this is not a very disciplined um, way of moderating a panel. It's, it's not... 
the David Cohen Show. It's, um, ladies and gentlemen, let's have some more feedback on Walsh and um, Averts. Um, maybe, Kim, you're a stripe painter and an art critical contributor. Can you give us some illumination? That's putting you on the spot. Think about it if you'd like to. Anyone else um, would like to comment? They say, yes, there's a lady here. Wait for the mic, please. I think, I haven't seen the Dan Walsh show. I generally like Dan Walsh's work a lot, but I'm not going to speak to it because I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. I saw Gabrielle's show. I thought it was quite beautiful. And I, di I just disagree with you. I just, I feel that each canvas or each piece has mm -hmm. its own integrity and that they're quite different one from another. That's yes. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yes. No, I, I'm not. Um, I was raising a, an objection, but the objection wasn't the diametric opposite of what you say. Um, but um, I... I but no, no, I'm, I thank you for saying it, nonetheless. Yes. Um, cool. Well, then, um, let's luxuriate in Dan Walsh's images for a moment or two more. Um, and... Um, then, okay, enough moments. Let's, um, <laughs> let's um, please, when the recording is posted, um, we will have a nice proper slide presentation of Walsh, as indeed the other artists. Um, technicians, are you okay with three and four? Have you tested them? Great. Um, so we're ready for number three then. We're in part two of our presentation. And we are moving now to Susan Rothenberg, uh, whose show is at uh, Speroni Westwater on the Bowery. And, um, well, we, I did get the thumbs up. So, ah, thank you very much. There you are. Cool. Um, Ariella. We're moving into painting of a very different uh, register now. We've got imagery, we've got mm, um, as much touch as anyone would want, I think, um, from a, a, a painterly painting. Um, relatively muted um, palette. Um, definite sensibility and touch that we get with um, Susan Rothenberg. Is she on good form in this show? And um, was the experience a pleasure for you? Well, it was definitely good to see a person, you know, doing stuff on a canvas. I felt like after the things I had been looking at, I, I, was, I was happy to see a kind of expressive um, touch. Um, I have to say, there was this one painting in that show that I found completely mystifying. Um, this, I don't know if it's up here. Ah, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one. I, I don't know what to make of that. And um, it's quite centrally located in the exhibit. Um, there's a study for it, which actually, it's called something like Playing a piece by Schubert, or I don't remember the exact title, but mm. do you remember? Something like playing a piece by Schubert, uh, or playing a Schubert sonata, or something like that. And in the study, you can see the piano, 
she's not facing it, but she's, she's, uh, she's got a piano there. And then in this final version, she looks, she's, well, you can see it there in the far in end. The far end. Um, we'll come back. And, you, you know, I just, I, I just didn't know what to make of that painting. And I didn't, I didn't know whether it was, you know, obviously it was intentional, but I didn't know whether it was a bad painting or whether it was a good painting that I didn't, was oh. unsympathetic to. Well, good that we bring up the B word early because um, aren't they all bad paintings with a capital B? Aren't they all, um, isn't, isn't her aesthetic permeated by a, a kind of um, gestural gut? I mean, they're good quality, bad painting, you know what I mean? They're, they're, um, they're sort of, there's a primitive quality to and um, uh, uh, an intensified awkwardness to her touch, and um, that's accentuated even more in this body of work than in, say, the horses that we're used to from the past, uh, with quite a diversity of image. Um, but I think that's her her quality. There's the painting that Ariella is referring to. Um, I actually thought she was a dancer from the sort of tutu, but um, but now I. I've, fail to look at the title I realize um, uh, unless she's dancing to Schubert but that's that's a possibility it's a very brutal face but then the whole painting is 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 kind of she, there's a certain brutalism in her aesthetic at the same time as a very consistent tasteful palette in fact the uh, painting we just looked at and the the yellow monkey are um, Oh, maybe it's a person, but with rather simian qualities. Um, that that those are like unusually um, chromatically intense for Rothenberg, who uh, usually kind of luxuriates in muddiness and grayness. Um, Lila, um, does this aesthetic charm you? Yes. Yes. Good. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have it fully amplified. Lila yes, it Pedro's does, Tom. David. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I am quite charmed by this aesthetic, and I don't really know what to make of the capital B, B word, like bad painting. Um, it's probably due to too much school and like relativism. But for me, I think she's... I find her aesthetic completely singular. I find her hand and her brain everywhere visible in her work. I find the elegance and restraint of her palette um, juxtaposed with the mystery and often sort of inexpressible horror and emotion of her subject matter um, to be extremely compelling. Um, there's one, yeah, that one. It's like the, little, the right with the, on the right that was uh, the gray with the like little it's um yeah they're like it's um the composition seems like fairly arbitrary but as though it makes completely intuitive emotional sense to her um, and there's a sort of assuredness in this muddiness that I find mm. totally unique and really um, special well um. I love your defense, uh, your argument for Rothenberg. Um, it's, um, um, and I, uh, I'll bring in Noah in a, in a second, but just to 
not refute, but just to just to give some context to, I mean, first of all, the colour, very Philip Guston, isn't it, with the greys and the mm-hmm. pinks. Um, second of all, the kind of awkward, brutal touch, very German neo-expressionism, 1980s. Um, and thirdly... Oh, I was going to say like expressionism, expressionism, yes. yeah, not neo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then the, uh, by bad, I mean... Um, it's intentionally um, sloppy, but it's not, on the other hand, um, intentionally vulgar. In fact, it's very refined, um, but it's... It's so, not so, precious. It's not precious, except that um, by setting up a yardstick where to be successful, it needs to be awkward and energetic and and uh, sloppy, that is ultimately precious. Because it's not, it's not fastidious, but if you insist on uh, an effect that is in a way precious even if the effect is lacking in preciousness I, I would say to your point that or against your point that I think the sort of decisive factor is into to whether it's you know intentionally bad intentionally brutal intent you know or whether it's inadvertently so or whether I think that again with these paintings it's like can you, you know, a lot of them will assimilate quite well into another collection of Philip Guston or, you know, they look sort of familiar. They look kind of quasi primitive. I mean, primitive, primitive, like cave paintings. Mm. Um, and those I think there will be always a market for. And mm. I think they're very market driven. That's my take on them. But that one that I'm talking about with the woman... That one is different from the others, mm. and there is something much more. I mean, why call it playing Schubert? I mean, I, I why invoke Schubert, and then um, sort of really go against the aesthetic? What is she talking? You know, what is she aiming at there? Because, you know, and why invoke the piano if you're not going to show it? And why, you know, what is ah, she saying about culture? It. What is she saying about? You know, what is she saying about our attempts to civilize ourselves when really in the mm. end, you know, all we have is this quite really brutal and enraged person mm. looking at us. Right. Do you have any insights into the Schubertian uh, quality of that? She has a very ugly face, obviously, and, and um, uh, difficult um, kind of eked out anti-painterly marks to get those agitated lines down there. I don't have any insight about the Schubert. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know Schubert well enough to, right. to give any sort of remark. And, and I, it could just as easily be like, this is Rams. an image of someone when they were playing Schubert, when they were actually playing Schubert, that, that is source material. Exactly. It could have been, in fact, Susan Rothenberg was listening to, was playing Schubert while she was, she was listening to Winterreiser and painting this ugly woman in a black dress. It could dress. be a YouTube video. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I was just kind of really unimpressed by this show. They were, the painting that Lila mentioned of the gray panel with the red birds. And mm. there was another one on that floor that was just outside of the stairwell that I was, I was really taken by both of those. But otherwise I was just sort of un, 
uninspired by these. I mean, I feel like um, some of the paintings had like what the sort of mark making that I was familiar with, with the coarse images and some of those other things mm-hmm. but without any of the sort of like you can tell she really loves horses and she really enjoys making these images of horses. Whereas these don't feel as though they mm. come out of that same place of like intense love. And then a lot of the marks really just sort of that painting of the tree kind of drove me nuts. Cause it, all the marks sort of like hit the same mm. emotional register for me. And so you don't get like a, it just looks like a frustrated attempt to make a painting of a tree instead of like, I, I feel like sometimes an artist, like their tentative mark making adds up to a really um, anxious and energetic image. Whereas this looks like an, an image that's made out of a bunch of tentative marks where it never really. There's the tree on the left. Yes. The tree. Yeah. It's certainly not Sylvia Plymac mangled. Or like, it? Giacometti or something. I mean, I don't know. I, I was I was reading up a little bit on her and sort of her emergence in the scene. And, yeah. you know, the whole thing about her at the beginning is that she was making these representational paintings at a time when people were not making representational paintings. So she's, mm-hmm. you know, in this kind of minority in the forefront of this thing. And now, you know, we're in a completely different place. Mm. And so the question is, does something like that have meaning or how does it have meaning now when we're used to seeing representational paintings? So, you know, what do they have to say to us now? But I distinctly remember, Noah, and I'm surprised therefore you talk about the, the real passion she has for horses. I remember her explicitly saying, and, and remember the horse was pretty much the same horse painted in the same profile, a sort of dead looking horse yeah. over and over again. Um, uh, that I remember her deliberate, specifically saying that oh, she didn't have any special feeling for this horse. It's it's just an image to have an image to start with. That um, in fact, it was a very kind of post-minimal sort of horse. I mean, it was um, it's 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 a bit like it's contemporaneous with and very comparable to Jennifer Bartlett's house. It's a sort of a given, a simple form that you can see immediately of course hers is more observational and gestural than um uh, jennifer bartlett Bartlett might be like a really good sorry jennifer bartlett might be like a really good analogy here Mm. and and there are some jennifer bartlett's where she just kind of like piles on the paint yes and it doesn't do anything as opposed to just like a bunch of little dots that you know cohere into an image i don't know but the the excess of like you know the expressive mark for me in a lot of these just does not it seems melodramatic or something it seems stylized to me it seems stylized. I, I think it's because what I think what you're talking about is that it's about it's not really expressive but it's about being expressive so it's mm, sort of right. meta mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you know she's not really like the you know you know doing this it's like she's she already you know she's she's thinking about how she's going to make a gesturally expressive painting. Right. And so it, it's almost like a kind of commentary on itself, which is sort of why, 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 why would you do that? And so then like, I don't know why the, those gray and red paintings feel so much more powerful to me. Cause they remind you of Gustin. 
<laughs> I mean, honestly, so that, I think that's. I mean, maybe. I, I would feel really bad if that's the case. But. <laughs> I think that's the case for me. I think that in those, she's actually. I can't use this. You must use this. She's actually. Am I doing better? Yeah. She's actually pushing herself a little further and doing more interesting things. That being said, I do think there's a conceptual argument for what she's doing with the melodrama and the idea of um, performing her expressivity and the space that that creates between the actual subject matter of the painting, the emotional gesture to which the paint is calling attention, and your response to that as a viewer, that's an interesting kind of conceptual space that she generates. It might not be like pleasant or uh, the most compelling to everyone, but for example, like having this question about the Schubert and like the edge of frustration that it raises, I think is actually really effective, even if it's not a painting you want to live with. I, I also, agree. I don't think that figure is ugly. I think she looks like a fascinating hedge she witch. Looks, to me, she looks like a Gauguin, like a Gauguin woodcut. Like that's uh, the, what yeah. I thought of when I looked at it, it's sort of like that. But I, I don't get like, I think a lot of people got like hideous horror from that figure. And I, I got like, well, it's interesting. It'll come up oddness. in a moment, but it's interesting to see, to, to work out whether, it's a brutal painting of a woman who might be quite nice looking, or if it's um, um, a sensitive painting of a brutally ugly woman. I mean, it could be, um, but look at the face, look at the mouth, the way the lower lip protrudes, the, the nose going into the eye, the eye at a well, good there's angle. That, but there's that pink uh, section of it that looks not like Not to be a normative wound. at all, but she's not, uh, she's not Kate Moss. <laughs> No, she's not capable. That is a sentence. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, I mean, seriously, I think the artist wants us to either pity or feel revulsed by the, the face there. Well, I thought... I, I, I mean, I don't know. I think a better test case for that is she's got paintings of, like, dead mice. And right. how are I we supposed to deal those, with those? But those were, I thought those were quite beautiful. I kind of hated them. And then as I was walking out, I was like, oh, maybe those are, maybe those are pretty cool. <laughs> but I'm also reminded with the dead mice that, that her husband, uh, Bruce Harmon, made a, like a, what, a seven-hour movie or something about a, a mouse that was annoying him in his studio. So maybe this painting is commemorating that the mouse was finally caught or something. Um, that, that life is now tolerable in New Mexico for the Nauman Rothenberg household. Um, <laughs> Um, cool. Um, Lila, um, there, there have been some skepticism sandwiching your enthusiasm. Do you want to have a last word on Rothenberg? I, w I wouldn't say I'm wildly enthusiastic. I just think she's doing more interesting things than we're giving her credit for. Um, and I like her palette, and I don't think that lady is that ugly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see if she's going to come up one last time. So maybe you take an audience vote. Um, no, that's uh, not politically correct. I think the better thing would be to move on to some democracy portraits. So loop number four, please. Um, and we will be coming to the audience for their response to Rothenberg and um, Michael St. Thomas in a moment. I'm not in a moment, in, in 15 moments. Um, Good. Loop four is on its way. And we're now looking at a, a, an exhibition in two venues, uh, Michael St. Thomas Democracy Portraits. St. John. 
St. John. Did I say St. Thomas? Okay. Twice. Twice. Okay, right. Um, right, you've got to know your saints. So, um, the democracy portraits in two venues at Ashes Upon Ashes and um, Ashes on Ashes and Team Gallery, Inc. This is Team Gallery's space uh, in Soho, and that's uh, Tony Soprano. Um, and we're about to see a couple of images uh, from the um, Ashes slash Ashes Gallery. The website is Ashes on Ashes, which is what empowered me to give it that name. But one could call it Ashes slash Ashes. Um, good. Um, Noah, why don't you start us... Uh, no, did we have... Yeah, we did. Noah, who, who hasn't started yet? Anyone not started? I think everyone has started, actually, so... Um, and I'm not going to start, so Noah, tell us... Tell us... Um, why you think they're called democracy portraits? I don't. And don't do the typical review. You're not Roberta Smith, so you can't say, I'm going to ignore that question and say what I think. Answer the question. Why? I wish called- I could. I, I, I think it was explained on one of the press releases, but I skipped over it because I usually ignore press releases. I don't know. I found these very unpersuasive as like, portraits of democracy in America. I mean, you could call them like, Portraits of plurality in America, but plurality is not the same as democracy. Right. And as a as individual images, I found some of them really exciting. But as like a a group, it just never cohered for me in any fundamental way. And in a way that kind of annoyed me that they were called democracy paintings. Mm. Perhaps the whole enterprise is partly driven by a desire to annoy um, Lila. It should be on if it was on before. I had the same um, response to the word democracy. Um, And I thought about it a lot. And then we were talking in the green room about wanting to get away from the political uh, overwhelmingness of every single day. Um, But the only the the more generous reading I I was able to come up with mm-hmm. was uh you know if if we are looking if we're situating these works within like a unique and critical moment in the American project then as an artist it's interesting to tackle it with sort of the visual keystones or landmarks or fragments that constitute like your experience of that project. Um, so I suppose conceptually that could be kind of interesting as a whole and as individual works. Um, I wasn't terribly struck by things except by one, like individual ones that just, I uh, found slightly irritating. Do you care to elaborate? Well, like the 9-11 one, that's a riff on the Felix Gonzalez Torres work. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that, to be both like a misreading and a misappropriation of that work, um, like conceptually, tonally, emotionally. And I have no problem with misappropriating work and reading it incorrectly and doing things to it that you're not supposed to do so long as the outcome is compelling and interesting. But I found the outcome to be quite flat, like, you know, a commentary on American democracy where two clocks are stuck at 9-11 forever 
doesn't seem like a terribly groundbreaking idea to me. Nine eleven, or were they the times that they the were the times that the planes hit? Yeah. Oh, oh, I yeah. see, right. But I mean, mm. I that that sort of thing where it's like the explanation is so obvious, the take on a really significant work does not justify that work being used in that way. I found mm. frustrating. Right. Well, I would also include there was an image of Donald Trump. I believe was there not? There was there a portrait of him? I'm pretty sure. Not that one, but there was another one, and I thought, do I really need to come in here to look at a picture of Donald Trump? Like, I just thought, well, that's just not, that's just not okay. Um, mm. But, uh, I, I mean, I think that you have to put quotation marks around the word democracy, which is, I think, what he's doing. I mean, I think the whole thing is supposed to be ironic, um, not convincingly so. Um, and I just found the, 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 the collection of things was co completely random. I mean, and, and you were left guessing about what, you know, who are the movie stars in that collage? Like, I can, I get six of them, but I can't find, figure out the other two. Or um, is that Spike Lee wearing the hat, you know, in the, um, the sort of one where you see him from the, he's sort of outlined. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It is Spike Lee. Right. I had to find it on my phone. And I was like, well, let's see, you know, Google Spike Lee, like, can I find it? Oh, yeah, oh, that's the one with him yeah. in the hat. And that was just annoying, also, I mean, to use that word, but um, I just thought, why? Like, why Spike Lee? Why James Gandolfini? Why Trump? Why the Facebook logo? Well, why? the Facebook logo gives us a clue, doesn't it? This is like being on someone's Facebook page. It's a, or, or rather, it's like oh. the feed in one's Facebook. It is um, <laughs> random... <laughs> It didn't uh, excess kind of pointless. Who would put who would put some of those things on their f Facebook page? I mean, who, well, is it supposed um, to be him or a stand-in for him? I uh, if you've got as many friends as I seem to have accumulated, you, <laughs> if your your feed can really go from cat pictures to um, um, Mira Shaw doing a, a circles on the New York Again, Times to uh, yeah, like plurality and excess and like a variety of things is not. Demo Facebook is not democracy. Like I don't right. know why those two things should be conflated in some sort of way. Oh. Just because there is a narrative about like Facebook's, it's not democracy, but it's the demos. Well, no, but I think it, I really do think it's ironic, and I think what he's really saying is like this isn't democracy. You know, ha ha on you if you believe it is, because really it's this commodified world of brands and celebrities that we trade in, and really that's not democracy at all. Mm. It's a kind of simulacrum and, you know, that, so that the joke's kind of on you if you, you know. Talking of simulacrum, why are they paintings? Well, they're Some not. Some of them are Some not. Some of them are not. Ah. And I can't, I can't understand why the choice is made to collage this one and to paint that one and on and on. Mm. Well, and some of them are photographs mm -hmm. of things that he then cut out and mm -hmm. glued onto paintings, or mm -hmm. they're, they're paintings of photographs that then were cut out and glued onto other paintings. So the process is mm. varies. You, usually what, the, yes, the Halloween, um, the zombie. Really caught my eye, and, and actually, and juxtaposed in the way it is with—is it a still from um, Andy Warhol's Empire, or is it? Um, you know, or, I, uh, a painting of Sarah Charlesworth's uh -huh. photograph of the of the Empire State Building. But it also looked kind of like a Richter kind of fudged out Richter yeah. painting, also. But it, 
this one, I just thought, you know, with Joker having just won the mm. Academy Award and it was, it came the closest to kind of getting at that sort of paranoid, freaky, creepy mm. image, you know, yeah. kind of, and I think that's the one that they used on their postcard because yeah. it was by the strongest one by far. Yes. Now, usually when three, my three guests are down on a show, <laughs> um, usually even if I'm even more down on the show, I jump to it and improvise a spirited defense of the paintings or the works. But that's not going to happen tonight. Um, so um, I wonder how it is with, um, you know, we've been talking about David Reed. I wonder how it is that, um, um, I wonder how it is that we elected, well, they, I guess they looked like they should be interesting. So it was a sexy title and a two-part show. So what was... This is a final question for my panelists. Otherwise, we're going to dock one quarter of your pay. Um, when you thought this would be a good show to discuss, um, what was going through your mind? I didn't, I, I didn't pick You didn't show. pick this one? No. Did you? I did pick it, but also I didn't get my number one pick, so I, I do want to qualify that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but What was that again? The Scarstead show. Yeah, well, none of us got our number one because Scarstead, um, uh, it was a two and a half week show. Just to, sorry, we, <laughs> I, I, I missed the opening of a show that I was very much looking forward to, a three-woman show curated by David Sally. And two of the women are women for whom I've curated uh, exhibitions. And the third is a woman that I met when I was a, visiting her art school in the 80s. So I was very, very excited by this selection. And, um, and I thought, well, the show only just opened. So I'll, I was going to say, we're going to break the rules of the review panel, which is never to review group shows. But we are going to review this show curated by David Sally of three women. Well, because it's a gallery that interestingly doesn't usually show many women. And their one foray into showing three women uh, was less than three weeks long. Um, uh, which I might be a comment on their view of women, but um, but that's that's unkind. Uh, so unfortunately, we couldn't discuss it because it closed two weeks ago. Um, so it was my number one choice as well. But that doesn't really answer the question. No, what were you thinking about? Um, I thought um, that it was an interesting concept and enough works like just by sheer volume that some interesting interactions and possibilities could emerge mm. and also I thought that it would maybe generate some interesting audience questions because it could be read in very different ways by many different people. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's that's basically how I felt. I mean, I like team a lot and I I thought it was interesting to spread this uh, show of like so many images over to galleries and yeah. to try this out. And I think I'm really curious about the essay that was written about this that com that it reads the work through uh, the Richard Hofstadter essay about uh, the paranoid style in American politics. Because I just reread that essay and it's it's really amazing, especially for when it was written. The collection, that whole collection. Uh, that that is titled after that essay is, I mean, if you could substitute the way that he's talking about Goldwater for you know talking about contemporary Washington, mm. uh, it's it's 
not dissimilar. It's not very far off from one another. And um, so I was a little bit curious about someone trying to address, um, I don't know, like images of the world in the past five years because it has been so rapid and saturated Mm. And, and also, you know, it coincides with the rise of like, there's like Instagram and all this other stuff where it's just like streams of images. And, Mm. but this, I don't know, like if you go on Instagram, what you see is like a lot of people making similar images over and over. If you go on like Tinder, you see a lot of the same images over and over. If you look in the news, it's a lot of the same images over and over. I mean, I think people like to repeat images. So it's strange to me that you would have like Tony Soprano and a cow and like a Facebook logo. Like those three things, stop clocks, whatever, like they don't cohere in the same sort of way that like... How can you have repetitions at Tinder? Aren't Tinder the individuals who have their accounts? People like going to Hudson Yards and like taking the same picture. Oh, I see. Ah, All right. People going to, you know, to safari Uh tours and it's like everybody kind of like has the same picture. Or going to Brooklyn and taking... Yes, and annoying me when I'm... There you go. Yeah, the bridge. Yes, the bridge. The bridge too far. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Thank you. I mean, Pat- there's like, there's repetition that runs through culture. And yes. so to, oh, yes. to like pick out like a disparate set of, mm. you know, 25 images doesn't do justice to like what people are experiencing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found the show intriguing. And yeah. I, I particularly liked the physical space of ashes on ashes. Um, yeah. The way the ceiling and the floor were as white as the gallery. I felt like I was in really the perfect white cube. Um, I wasn't having the perfect aesthetic experience, but... Um, I think if you had 300 of these things... Yeah, that would... Then you could have a really, really interesting show. Or a slideshow of 300 of these things. And Yes. Cool. Um, so um, I hope that in our second um, audience discussion, we're going to have a spirited defense of Michael St. John. And um, um, I, I also want to hear um, some passion um, from uh, your response to uh, Susan Rothenberg. So the mic will be going around, and I, there's a gentleman in the second row who's... Um, please... When I uh, saw the slides of uh, Susan Rothenberg, I I was reminded of the very first time that I saw one of her works, and I liked it quite a lot, but I I wondered why I didn't like it more. Today I like it more, and I I can't I don't know if it's a change of the times or a change of Rothenberg or, or my own change. Uh, but it seems to me, and I think you touched on it a little bit, uh, is that there's a certain uh, lyrical, a more conversational quality about about the these later works, and uh, it's uh, you know it's much easier to see her through being there through through the work. So it it has a certain kind of uh, personal content that uh, that I'm seeing today that I didn't I didn't see before I think I, I think it's worth um, 
I don't know if we, we did an adequate job of making the point that, um, you know, from shows in the past where it's been variations on a horse um, to the, 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 both the, in color terms and in uh, motif terms, uh, this is sort of Rothenberg at her most effusive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, yes, Robert Morgan again. Great, fantastic. Thank you. I, I agree with your point about Susan Rothenberg. I, th I think she's uh, overlooked, let's put it that way. I think she's a, a marvelous artist. Uh, one of the great thrills of last summer is I was in a group show with her, and I thought that although I do completely different work, I was just so excited that she was in the same exhibition. And uh, I saw the first show that she was in, actually, back in the 70s. And, uh, you know, I've, n I've never lost an interest. I think part of the problem... I mean, I've written a book on Bruce Nauman, but, you know, he gets all the attention and she's terrific, I think. And I think the idea of, of putting her in a little higher stature as somebody who's made a unique and original contribution in terms of American art, I think uh, people are shy about doing that, but they shouldn't be because I think she's the real deal, honestly. So I want to defend Michael St. John a little bit. Um, the panelists seemed a bit, um, uh, there was a, this question as to the relationship between democracy and the images that are being presented. And I wanted to pose the question of the relationship between representation and democracy and representation and art. Representation being kind of a keystone um, concept for both of these uh, spheres and also one that has been in crisis in various ways, perhaps is in crisis now, maybe more so for democracy than for art. Um, also, uh, I wanted to say, I, I don't think that he's being cynical. I think that he's being sincere. And I think we might read cynicism into the works because we're ambivalent about what is being presented to us. I definitely agree with you, Jamie, that he's, he's totally sincere. I think that's right. Um, yeah. With Rothenberg, well, I, uh, yeah, it's interesting. With Rothenberg, we, won we wonder about, are they kind of intentionally brutal, or is that just her style, or is that uh, whatever? And then, then with um, St. John, we're, we're concerned about, um, well, the question I was concerned about sincerity. Um, interesting, therefore, kind of connection there. But it, it comes back to possible. Sometimes when I think about intentions, it's because the work is screaming out about them. And other times, I think I revert to the notion of the you know the intentional fallacy. Um, uh, doesn't matter what they intended; it's the the result is what counts. Um, and um, with Rothenberg, the intentionality seems um, a live issue. And with, with St. John, though, I don't know. Um, does it matter if, if one is sort of coated in, with, it's kind of like a confetti of banality and the person doing it was sincere, or whether he's a cynic? It doesn't matter, does it, really? I mean, is, as, unless it's a portrait of... Um, Michael St. John, 
but it's not. It's a portrait of democracy. I, I think, I mean, I don't know if it's irrelevant to bring in the question of, you know, like the technical question of how well painted they are and, mm. you know, are they meant to be seen as aesthetic objects or are they, do they have a different aim entirely? Mm. And I, I, I would ask you guys because, you know, for the most part, I, I did not find them visually engaging, you know. I mean, I, they were sort of conceptual in intention and visually kind of bleh. Or, I mean, do you agree with that? Um, I ha I like half agree with a lot of things that were just said. Um, the sincerity question, I would go back to my initial take on this, the whole like premise of this, which is that I, I actually find it to be a deeply like personal and, um, and sincere way of engaging a lot of really complex questions. Uh, that doesn't mean it's effective and that doesn't mean that every mechanism used to arrive at that expression is devoid of some cynical or at least um, not fully considered gesture or tactic. Um, the technical question is a really hard one for me with this particular work because it's like to go back to the question of like the arbitrariness of when he uses what, um, you know, I, it depends on how technically effective it is in conveying what he's trying to convey. And I'm not sure he's sure in a unified way what he's trying to convey. So I don't, I, I don't know how rigorous or thoughtful those decisions are. And how do we read the decision to make every canvas the same size? I don't know. I was just thinking about that. I mean, that's the other thing that you don't get in a, a scroll through Facebook or something like that. Mm. There's like horizontal stuff, there's square stuff, there's vertical stuff. Mm. It's all sort of like some of it's very pixelated, some of it's not. I mean, I guess some of this is very pixelated and others is not. But it just, um, I don't know. It, it feels It feels very constricted compared to what... I would imagine the aim of the of the work is intending to be. Of course, it gives a democracy to each image that they are represented in the same format, but then there's the sneaking suspicion that he just had a job lot of canvases that happen to be the same size. Um, yes, uh, and another spirited defense of St. John or uh, of Rothenberg or a critique, whatever, critique, novelists. Curiously, Ankarawa came to mind as I saw Excuse the show. Excuse me? Um, Ankarawa came to mind when I saw the show. Ah. Something about the, uh, this stabilized format, some kind of compulsion by a calendar to uh, throw things up. There is a stabilized format for Instagram and stuff like that. It was interesting to hear the, uh, how you guys choose the shows, too, because I, I always start re reading the tea leaves on how they were selected, Rothenberg and and St. John is very expressive. The others are very abstract and rigorous in different ways. Uh, it's interesting to see that it's more or less random. <laughs> um, maybe not so much so, but that. Yeah. Also the uh, sense that there's a sense of pop in St. John's work and the Transangardia, Rothenberg's work. And... Yes. Um, 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 op art in the uh, other artists' work. So, sense of these 
echoes of times gone by or something like that or breathing new life into those movements or something. Yes, we're definitely in an echo chamber, um, aren't we, at the moment with styles. Um, on Kawara is a very interesting, well, it's a left of field comparison with... Um, um, well, it gives, it gives you a little bit of a sense. I mean, I think your idea is interesting because it explains maybe why he chose the images that he did. I mean, we don't, we don't know. He doesn't say, I don't think. So maybe it was some kind of process like, oh, today the first thing I see is Tony Soprano, or today the first thing I see is this, so I'm going to paint this. You know, and it's a reflection of his visual field on any given day, and that, and then that's the record of it. I mean, I, I didn't see anything about that, but that would be, it, you know. I get the sense that there's probably that the, these two shows, uh, these two venues, of almost sort of. Um, they, they may be the are these the tip of the iceberg or was this um, you know I'd be curious to know that mm-hmm. if we went to St John's studio I would mean, we I heard, see I, I overheard and I don't know how much of this is true so I don't know but I hmm. overheard someone say when I was in the gallery that he so he used to teach at NYU and he retired or left NYU and he lives in the Berkshires now hmm. and. They hadn't heard a peep out of him in, in five years, something like that. Like he was just generating this body of work and no one had seen it. And then he sort of showed up with this. Now, this could be a complete myth that I just made up. I don't know. But well, you know if you made it up. I, 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 I didn't make it up, but I might have mis, misheard. Right. I was sort of right. eavesdropping. So I, I don't know. But it was plausible to me that that would be the case. Insider trading. Well, and that there were many more. I mean, the, in the in the catalog of the that they had in the gallery, there yeah. were others that were mm-hmm. not in these mm-hmm. two shows. That you know, more of more or less the same kind of thing. Um, yes, there were there were many many more. Audience Rothenberg. <laughs> Anything more on Rothenberg? No. Okay. Well, going, going on. Thank you very much. I should just say that our next meeting, which is on March the 11th, Terence Trio, Laurie Fendrick, and Barbara McAdam will be my guests. And you'll get announcements soon of the shows that we've selected. I look forward to seeing you all then. And thank you very much. And let's go to one Grand Army Plaza for refreshments. <laughs> <laughs>